0: Hello, welcome back to Meraki Unboxed. My name is Simon Thompson, host of the show. And as I say every time, it is great to have you back. And I genuinely mean that. It's uh, I'm so grateful for the audience we have for this podcast. And it is a pretty significant one at this point. Uh, so clearly this material is resonating. I'm super happy to have you uh, joining us so regularly. Uh, we do these podcasts every couple of weeks. And keeping that fed with new topics of interest, both technical and culture-related with Meraki, is my mission. So I'd love to have your help with that. And any ideas that you have, any input you'd like to make to the podcast, as always, I very much welcome those. You can reach out to me online at Meraki Simon on Twitter. Please reach out to me on there. Uh, send me a note, let me know what you think, ideas for the show, or even if you'd like to participate on the show. we also love to have guests come and join us on here, and we'd love to welcome you. I'm very excited about today's episode. I've actually been looking forward to doing this one for quite some time, uh, because today we're going to talk to one of the earliest employees at Meraki. He's going to talk us through what we do with the hardware side of things at Meraki. So a lot of the time, if you look back through the episodes we've done, I think we've got about 33 of those in the bag now. Most of those episodes are talking about features. To some degree, we talk about some of the capabilities of the products. What we haven't done up till today is really talk about the specific hardware itself. So the physical items that you touch, we're always talking about the cloud, we're always talking about the features. Today, we're going to talk about the hardware that you actually unbox and that whole experience and how we develop that at Meraki, the thinking behind it. So without further ado, let me introduce Morgan. Morgan, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. And so we're going to get into this conversation in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, maybe if you could just give us a quick introduction to yourself. Let us know, you know who you are, what you do for us at Meraki, and just give us that background.
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, my name is Morgan Teachworth. I've been with Meraki since 2006. As Simon mentioned, I'm wow. one of the, the early employees. And since the very beginning through to now, I am responsible for all of the hardware, And that is full cycle. That is from early concept through design, as well as manufacturing and production, all the way out to sort of that, you know, maintenance and review of quality. So I, you know, I look after that and that's all of our product lines. I also run the supply chain group at Meraki, make sure that we can actually get that hardware into, into stock and then out to the customer.
0: All right. I'm actually pretty excited to be talking to somebody who joined the company in the year that we think of as the year Meraki started, 2006. Uh, and we were talking just before we hit the record button about which number you are. It's, um, it's certainly in single figures though, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. We always argue whether it's, you know, three, four, five, and it really comes down to whether or not you count interns. Right. That's how early and kind of twitchy it is there.
0: So let's talk for a moment about what that office environment looked like. Probably nothing like we experienced today in our in our San Francisco headquarters, or perhaps I should say in 2020, in our respective homes. It's just been so much change. But um, maybe take us back and paint a picture for us of what it actually looked like. Where were you working? And what were the kind of early experiences like?
1: Well, you know, sadly, for a successful Silicon Valley startup, there was no garage. Um, so <laughs> when you go back to the beginning, we had, a tiny little office in kind of an old industrial park. There's an area near Highway 101, which is kind of sandwiched between a very nice suburb, Palo Alto Mountain View, and literally the freeway on-ramp. So we had an office, two little single bathrooms, but we needed a server room, so we used one of the bathrooms as a server room. Uh There was a main room, which is where most of the magic happened. That's where all the devs, uh, developers sat. There was an inventory room, which doubled as the engineering space for hardware. So, you know, I had a strong motivation to see inventory leave back then just so I would have a space to work. And then one conference room. You know, it was the only nice room uh, so we could try and have people in, you know, both uh, ask them for money and also try to sell them things because we were looking for funding at that time. Honestly, the entire office is like the size of my master bedroom now. (laughs) Um, And we could probably comfortably fit maybe 10 people in there in a a high density. So it was good. The neighborhood, however, was bad. Uh, It was like the one stretch of Mountain View where it was, you know, very, very old neighborhood, very low income. And it wasn't that that bothered us so much as it was basically the only place in Mountain View where they did like halfway house or prison release programs. So – you know, Early on, we would do installs in the parking lot for testing, and it was very common for people to come by to ask about it, which we love to talk about it. The problem is they would always ask, so which of these things are worth a lot? Um, and that's not a question <laughs> I'm not comfortable asking or answering, especially when it comes to uh, you know, a poor startup's network equipment. So we'd always we'd always lie. And sure enough, that stuff we'd lie about would always be the stuff that would disappear.
0: <laughs> OK, well, I mean, I, I can't think of a better description than that. You've really brought it to life for me. I'm sure everybody's listening has got a, a, now an image in their head of what, what this early version of Baraki looked like. I'm picturing boxes everywhere and uh, setting up tables outside to test out gear on. Fun times, I'm sure. Um, yeah.
1: And, and what really motivated us to move to our next office, which was nearby, was the need for just pure inventory space. It wasn't the need for working space. Our second Mm -hmm. office was only a few blocks away and it was literally a giant warehouse. And we turned that one room that I worked in at the original office into an entire office. It was everyone and a a stack of boxes and the stack of boxes would grow and push us over. We'd sell and we'd expand and we'd play that game until we eventually moved to San Francisco.
0: Right, and when was that? When was the move to the city?
1: Oh, I don't remember exactly. I think it was around the end of 2008, early 2009. It was certainly during our um, Free the Net program, which was one of our big experiments in Mm -hmm. San Francisco. We were doing so much work in the city that several Meraki founders and executives started to move to the city. And when they did that, I assumed it was only a matter of time before the company itself would be up, embedding ourselves in the same neighborhoods as our largest testbed.
0: Absolutely. And, and actually, that's something I wanted to ask you about as well, was the free the net thing. That's something a lot of people are familiar with from the very early days as a way to really develop this mesh networking and see it out in the wild. So maybe describe a little bit of that project for us.
1: Sure. Many people might remember there was a Google Wi-Fi initiative and they were looking at taking city centers or neighborhoods and installing access, just general free public access. And they did that in Mountain View as a pilot, and that's one of the reasons we were there. They were one of our first customers because the big challenge that Wi-Fi had back in 2006 is if you installed it outdoors, it worked okay, but you couldn't get it into the buildings. And so offering it as as a public service, it just wasn't working. And we were using the Meraki mesh and the Meraki access points to help extend that. Now, that was great. You know, they were a good early partner and we learned a lot, but they were making big promises at the time to go into San Francisco and wire the whole thing up there. Mm-hmm. And the Google Wi-Fi project, just it wasn't that successful for them. So they started to tune down their efforts in San Francisco. You know, Meraki walked into that vacuum. We said, well, you know, we can't make the same promises as someone like Google can, but We do have a technology that spreads, you know, single gateways pretty far. It's very good for daily access. And we're willing to donate a fair amount of equipment to this effort. And so that's what we did. We went up with a lot of our early equipment. It was a combination of us just throwing units at it gratis. And Mm -hmm. also the city gave us a significant, you know, starter investment to buy more gear And we just went in and we went neighborhood by neighborhood, volunteer by volunteer. We ran radio ads. We had posters on signs in the city that basically said, like, call us for free internet. And when we'd get a good volunteer, we'd go out to site and we would host a a DSL connection and an access point. And then we would just start giving away repeaters in the neighborhood. Like I said, we go neighborhood by neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. so at, at a point, I believe we had, a couple thousand units installed in San Francisco, across a share of several hundred gateways. You know, it wasn't anything like official government infrastructure, but there were a lot of people who used it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And even walking around the city now, you'll occasionally see a Free the Net SSID. You know, most of those SSIDs don't work anymore because we've stopped hosting right. the, uh, the gateways. But it was fairly successful for. The citizens for about a year, two years, and it was a tremendous test bed for us. Our dashboard never could have tested scale at that size without that kind of project. And we learned a ton just about pure wireless protocol and managing mesh and interference it was a fantastic turning point for us as a small company.
0: I can imagine. I mean, really like a gift in a way. It just goes to show how circumstances and just serendipity can lead to the most amazing opportunities for a new um, startup business like, like we were at that time. And like you said, how do you possibly get a better opportunity for a test bed, an opportunity to test out the software and the, and the hardware, of course, that you've been developing as well? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and for me personally, it was a fantastic learning experience. You know, I wasn't a network or a wireless engineer coming into Meraki, which was totally wireless focused in the beginning. To be honest, I don't tell this to that many people, uh, wireless was literally my worst subject in college. <laughs> so getting hands on with those antennas, like trying to solve real world problems or trying to get a signal down the street to the next stop and then spread it, like, that was a priceless experience for me personally as Mm. well.
0: And before we move too far into this story, you actually had a, a background, obviously, that was related to this, right? So how did this all come about in the first place? How did you find your way to Meraki?
1: You know, I, when I graduated, I went to work as a digital designer. I had done my undergrad with a specialty in digital and ASIC design. So I went to work for NVIDIA starting with graphics cards and then expanding into some of the other areas like uh, motherboards that they were working on, mm-hmm. very different. You know, That's not hardware design the way that we think of it in the product space and at Meraki, that's making chips. And while I was doing that, Sanjit, who was the CEO, one of the founders of Meraki, he was working at MIT doing his PhD, working on the RoofNet project, which was the prototype for all of the Meraki technology and management right. to come we had been roommates in undergrad so we, we, you know i think we had lived together two years in undergrad it had been the heyday of you know the tech revolution the web in mm-hmm. 1999 now come 2001 2002 you know i was happy to get a job and Sanjay was happy to be in a phd program but you know he was always the entrepreneur and i was at nvidia for about 4 years digital design was not my favorite to put it mildly so when he showed up in the bay and basically said i'm starting a company i said i don't care what you're doing i'm in and you know luckily my undergraduate background i had played at being a mechanical engineer for several years before switching over to digital design so i had a fundamental background in the skills you might need to do hardware they weren't by any means developed. And so it was advantageous that I came in so early at Meraki. You know, they let me learn while doing uh, without killing the company, which I'm, I'm very, very thankful for.
0: <laughs> and that's, that's what the kind of opportunity that makes startups really thrive, I think, in those early days. And that open mindedness to just bringing your abilities and just figuring out how to make it work. Um, that's certainly been one of the things I've valued most about my time at Meraki as well. I think it's been that sort of sense of can do and roll your sleeves up and everybody's in together and keep the organization nice and flat. It's just worked so well. And obviously that pays dividends. We're now, tw- well, goodness me, we're now 20 years on from uh, from those roof net days. And it's uh, it's quite incredible what's happened in the interim. Okay. So I think I was interested in hearing about some of the very early products that you got your, you know, cut your teeth on that you started to work on and develop some of those skills in the hardware space. So maybe talk us through some of the early examples, the early Meraki hardware and what you learned as you got things going there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I came in and I expected to walk into nothing, you know, a a company that had an idea, but didn't really have a product ready to go. And fortunately, the, you know, the RoofNet program had made a college-level partnership with one of our early manufacturing partners, where they would work with students, no money down, you know, no, nothing expected back, to start on a product development even before incorporation. So when I came in, you know, Sanjay had a pretty good prototype. The Meraki Mini, which was our first sellable product, you know, it, it looked quite a bit like the Meraki Mini so i started on something that we were able to polish up and get to market pretty quickly i always say the first product i worked on was meraki's first product but that was like i half owned that one so Mm -hmm. everything else since then you know we went and we turned that meraki mini into a family of products the meraki indoor uh the meraki wall plug which you don't even know about unless you've been with us a long long time That was really the first things I worked on. And that was just a tremendous lesson for me in how to work with what Meraki calls the JDM model, joint development manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would plonk myself down with our manufacturing partner, who at the time was also our primary design partner. I would set up camp in their facility, whether it was in China or Taiwan or an office in the U.S., and just not leave until we were done. Um, I have to say those early partners are glad to see the back of me at this point. But, you know, we we went from building the extensions of the Meraki Mini, which were, like I said, the indoor and the wall plug, to just starting to slowly expand the portfolio. We had the Meraki Outdoor mm-hmm. um, which, you know, if you've seen it, it's small and sleek and it looks like a giant Apple mouse. It stands out as kind of an anomaly in our history for its shape. But, you know, it was a fantastic product and it was a fantastic experience working on it. When we got into networking, we were riding the wave of lower cost SOCs, like Mm -hmm. the Enterprise chipsets had finally pushed down into the consumer space, and that made them incredibly easy to work with and incredibly economical. So, we just grabbed that, and we were one of the first companies to do so and really push enterprise level chipset technology out in our early products, which were more of a consumer grade product.
0: Mm. And the size of those early products is interesting to me as well, because obviously we described that one, the Meraki Mini, and I'm guessing mm-hmm. most people who are listening to this will have no idea what that is. I'm guessing you can probably Google a picture of it, but um, why did we go for that kind of physically small device? Why were we thinking Mini? What Was there any particular reasoning behind that?
1: Well, two things. One, that push into consumer technology chipsets meant that they were capable of being smaller and cooler than they'd ever been before. Mm-hmm. And when you do product design, like the nature of electronics design, you try and make things smaller, you try and make things sleeker, it not only decreases the price, but it makes them simpler to deploy. And so we jumped right on that. We were also lucky in that you know, wireless hadn't actually really started to explode by then. Up to the point where we were working on the Meraki early products, I don't even think I had Wi-Fi in my house at that point. You know, The first Wi-Fi access point I had in my house was probably a Meraki Mini. It wasn't that popular and the feature set was not as incredibly rich as it is today. So those platforms and solutions, like they could be really small and they could be really cool because they did what they needed to do for the time and They didn't have a lot of expansion for the future feature sets if you look where access points are today the equivalent of the meraki mini is probably 16 times its weight at you know eight Mm -hmm. times the area like that's what an access point looks like today you know we didn't do that on purpose we did that because the technology itself evolved to require so much you know horsepower at the edge extra features, you know, multiple antenna. The Meraki Mini had one antenna. That's all it needed. Like, can you imagine today an access point with just one antenna, you know? So it was just, it was a really sweet spot for those kinds of products and for the technology itself.
0: And it's also interesting because that time, uh, as well as your own experiences of that wave you described in in the hardware world, it was also a major time of evolution in the world of Wi-Fi. And in the sense that. When I was in my early career, way before Meraki, I was installing early enterprise Wi-Fi and you know, those access points were pretty dumb. They were very simple devices. And so much of the power was focused in the hardware controller that, of course, we, we never went down that pathway at Meraki. Um, so we, we we rely on a little bit more of that power to be in the access point itself. I mean, did you did you have that sense of the context that you were operating within at the time?
1: Absolutely. You know, we knew that there had been this cycle where we went from, I guess we called them fat APs to Mm, thin APs. At the same time, you know, people were talking about regular computing as like fat clients versus thin clients, the idea that your desk would just be a screen and all of your computing would actually be in the cloud. And so that's exactly what was happening. We were going to thin APs from the fat APs at the time. And it was a cycle. We went through a period where that totally made sense. You know, Mm -hmm. that was our main sell getting into cloud was the APs are going to be thin and then the cloud is going to be where all the cool stuff happens. You know, it turns out that all the cool stuff doesn't happen in the cloud. Much of the cool stuff happens in the cloud. But as APs got thick and fat again, like there was a lot of edge functionality that had to go back into them. So Mm. now we have best of both worlds. You know, we have an incredibly powerful set of features in the cloud, and we have fat APs that handle so much of what needs to happen, you know, right out at the edge.
0: Just moving the story forward a little bit, uh I mean I joined in 2012 and by that time I think Meraki was really getting into its stride from a scaling perspective. So the the models were looking really sleek by then and we were pumping them out at a pretty high click I think. Uh, So what did you see change as we got into the sort of volume business with Meraki as you saw it grow and and grab a foothold?
1: You know the big shift for us was going from a consumer free the net style market to the more of an enterprise approach. Mm. And so there was a tremendous shift in the way we made product and the way that we sold it when we started to design the MR line. You know I talked about products, the Meraki Mini, the Meraki outdoor. The first products in the, you know, the Meraki Enterprise line were, don't ask me why we picked the number, MR58, <laughs> MR11, and MR14. Fantastic numbers, but why do you start with those? Um, it's always and been so a mystery. Those were really like <laughs> Yeah, those, those were the first products in the MR line proper, and they were specifically, you know, built and targeted for Enterprise. Of course, at the time, you know, it was more of an SMB because we were moving out of consumer and apartment into right. SMB. But that was really the, the turning point. You know, and not only did it turn the way that we developed product and thought about things like quality and things like longevity, but it, it was a turning point in the way that we sold. You know, before then, it had all been about Meraki mesh and spreading connectivity With the move to enterprise, that's when we realized that it was actually the dashboard and the cloud that was the core value of the Meraki mission, the Meraki idea.
0: Mm -hmm. And if we think about the access points and the design of those, I'm sure that there are aspects of that design which are related to the way the thing is operating. So what's happening under the hood, the antenna configuration and layout and so on. Um, But I'm sure there are other considerations that go into the look of something like an access point. And I think that's maybe the best example, maybe that and the cameras, because those are the things that are out in view of, of most of the people in the office as opposed to being stuck away in a comms room.
1: You know, absolutely. I think that the biggest shift in that uh, hardware development around that time was longevity and robustness. You know, the mm-hmm. early products, the idea was you were selling them super cheap. You were thinking that they might last, you know, three years. So you designed for five, And if something went wrong, you just tell the customer, you know, throw it away, get a new one or recycle it, get a new one. Um, Now, when you went to enterprise, you know, suddenly the expectation was, you know, they were, they were tough as nails. They were supposed to last for 10 years. So you had to design for 20 and, you know, you didn't just have them in the palm of your hand and hang them next to your closet. They had to go on the wall and Mm -hmm. look good. And so that's when. You know, Meraki made a conscious choice in the industry from our sort of consumer DNA to say, you know, if we're going to make products, we're going to make them nice, you know. And Mm -hmm. so we put extra effort and we put extra money into the design of the product using slightly premium materials, you know, making sure that the shapes were differentiated in the market. And. It wasn't purely vanity, although vanity was certainly involved. <laughs> you know, Anybody who makes a product and tells not? you there wasn't an element of that is lying to you. But you know, we really wanted the product to stay up and for people, when they looked at it, to be happy that it was there, but also for people to not look at it too often. And so we played this game in design where... You want it to be striking, but you also want it to be unassuming. And mm-hmm. that is where all of the design philosophy from the early MRs onward came from, through the switches and the materials we selected there, through the design of the compact MXs, and the, the most recently, the cameras. Like, how do you take a camera – which is, at its core, kind of an offensive device to have looking at you and make it both striking and unassuming, you know, friendly, but at the same time providing security. Like there are a lot of stories that we have to tell during design to get to a product that communicates that story out of the box to the customer.
0: Right. It's a very interesting balance to, to be thinking about. And I'm so happy to hear that because I remember working in an EBC, which is basically a, a briefing center for potential customers. And we would have prospective customers coming in and looking around at the products, looking, getting a presentation about the technology. But the number of times we got comments about oh, that looks nice. Oh, I like the look of that. And I could see that on my desk. You know, we're all human at the end of the day. We all are consumers and we all have a sense of aesthetic to some degree. I imagine you've probably heard the phrase, Morgan, tell me how many times you've heard this phrase. We are like the Apple of networking. Ever heard that one?
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's probably our fault that it came up because so many of our early employees had had spent time at Apple beforehand.
0: Right. Right. It's certainly what yeah. I've heard, like spontaneously, a whole bunch of people online have, have said that over the years. And I think it, it has something to do with that attention to detail on the design because the products did look pretty good, even though in many cases they were shut away in a rack in a, in a comms room. I'm thinking of some of the switches, for example, uh, who could think that you could make an attractive looking switch, but I think we cracked it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just super proud of that because we were a small company you know we were a late entrant in many of these spaces and now you can see so many companies large companies and small are following some of the precedents that we set in design you mm-hmm. know just the move to the the smooth white and the sharp edges on access points like i won't name names but if you go out and you look at other solutions in the market and you compare them to the sort of family tree of things that came before, you will see Maraki's fingerprints in a lot of those designs. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely been an improvement overall, I think. There's been an up-leveling of the aesthetic for some of these products. So you can definitely be proud of that one, I think, uh, Morgan, for sure. So which, I mean, that's an interesting question. Which of the products that you've worked on over the many years, uh, which would you say you're most proud of and why would that be?
1: This is a hard question to answer. Do I pick the ones that were the most commercially successful uh, or the ones that weren't? In my case, I have to pick one of the ones that that wasn't. You know, it's not that long ago Meraki was working on the MC line, which was a Mm. set of phones. They were deployed if you bought one. I hope you enjoyed using it while you could. You know, we we had to shut that line down. And thankfully for us, it was not the most painful thing to do that because of the support from Cisco in transitioning customers over. But we built in the hardware space three fantastic phones, just amazing pieces of hardware, you know, incredible leverage of glass and metal and button technology and touch technology, just taking the best from the consumer space And, you know, only one of those phones launched. Those of you who are familiar with the line heard me say three phones and you'll be like, wait a minute. Well, you made one phone. Give me a break, Morgan. But in truth, the other ones were ready to go at the time when we discovered that we just couldn't compete in that space. The phone space is brutal. It's a a tough nut to crack for a couple of technical reasons. And also, you know, Cisco is is a major player in that space. We were finding ourselves going into the position of competing primarily against ourselves, which didn't make a lot of sense. So it's unfortunate. You know, that product line isn't a big commercial success, but it was so exciting to work on that as a hardware department. It moved our capabilities for other programs like the technology that went eventually went into the cameras, some of the stuff that's going into uh, products that are, are soon to be announced that moved the ball forward for us. Those phones are just you know beautiful if I you go in my office, I have them in my office <laughs> and because they don't do anything anymore they are beautiful conversation pieces. And they're just just my favorite. One of my favorite moments, a few years ago, I will admit, I took an interview with a startup. And I walked in to take that interview, and they had a Meraki phone in the conference room. Mm-hmm. And so every single conversation I had that day was like, so tell me about what you've been doing. Oh, Meraki, what do you do? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, I'm going to pick this up. And it spoke for itself. As soon as I said, my team is the team that made this you know, fantastic thing that's sitting on this desk right here. Touch it and tell me what you think about it. That was easy to make the sale. I don't know whether or not I would have got the job. They went out of business before they could make an (laughs) offer. But uh, it was really just a fantastic moment where, you know, worlds collide and you realize how small the valley is and what the value of just a, a nice looking, well-functioning, simple to use product really is.
0: Yeah, I definitely enjoyed some of the attention to detail on that. It was a shame that it was not a market we were able to break into. And, it, and as you said, such a difficult market, the whole world of telecom is, it gets big when you start looking at the detail, just the sheer number of features and all of the service provider ramifications, it's its huge. But we had to go and uh, you know, that's the nature of business. You win some, you lose some, live to fight Absolutely. another day. Um, one of the other aspects I was interested in uh, talking to you about was the packaging. So I know that that's something that you're also pretty passionate about. and A lot of attention goes into the unboxing experiences and just the efficiency of the packaging. And this is something which those of us who are more on the sort of technical side probably don't think too much about it, but we all experience it at some point. Um, so I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts on you know your own philosophy around packaging and how we've developed that at Meraki.
1: With packaging and the out-of-box experience, there's a challenge because you only get to design one experience and you're trying to meet the needs of all of the users. There's some point in time when each Meraki customer will open a device for the first time and you want that to be you know, a moment of magic, a moment of wonder, a moment of simplicity. You want them to be able to get going right away. And 500 boxes later, that single user is now solely concerned on how do I get this out and installed as quickly as possible? You know, how do I minimize the amount of garbage that I'm putting in my dumpster? And when that same user is now working on their five thousandth device, all they're thinking about is like, dang, couldn't this company have done less packaging? Like what about the green impact that I'm having here? Why is this tray made of plastic rather than made of cardboard, like blah, blah, blah. And so, the challenge is you're trying to serve the entire product life cycle and customer life cycle Mm. with that design. And that's a story that is all about compromises. It's not just about customer compromises. It's also about like your personal environmental conscience Mm. and how you feel about what you do. Like, you know, I don't go design something and be wasteful and not feel bad about it. Like if I make a choice that is not environmentally optimal, I live with that forever. I think of it like uh, Marley and the Christmas Carol, like the environmental chains that I eventually have to deal with in the afterlife are is my, <laughs> my footprint, especially as a product designer. Yeah. So what we do is focus on that out of box experience. We do want to showcase the product We want people to understand what they're getting and have access to everything they need to do the install in the box. And so that's kind of one principle. And the other one is minimizing the environmental cost. Mm. And what a lot of people don't understand about minimizing the environmental cost is every choice you make is a loss somewhere. If I go to fully recycled cardboard and only organic fibers now I'm creating more wastewater and depending on the part of the world where I'm doing that production the cheaper things to produce are done in the parts of the world that are least good at processing that wastewater and runoff I've created one problem where mm. if I you know if I use a recyclable plastic tray I am not creating all that water runoff but now I'm contributing to petrochemical waste it's balancing the overall impact and so what we do product by product and this is why there's less consistency product to product in the Meraki line than you might find in some other product companies is we look at the geography where we're making the devices we look at the geography where we're creating the the packaging we look at the full cycle including freight costs size of the packaging and how that influences freight loading. Mm -hmm. Um, And we try and minimize our footprint. And that means things are different every time. You know, I get feedback. Twitter loves to come at me with a, (laughs) hey, Murak, I just bought your new blank. And there's a plastic tray in there like, what gives? I thought you cared about the planet. And, you know, I'll take that to my packaging team and say, hey, look at this. And I get a long explanation of why this particular decision was the right decision for this exact product and case. And so that's our philosophy moving forward. You know, we don't do what looks best. We do what actually is best based on the best data that we can put together. And we have the minimum requirements. We have to keep the product safe. We have to be able to get it from place to place. It has to be, you know, recyclable and returnable. And so it's interesting to dig into this rabbit hole because you think, packaging is easy. It's just a box. You put it in a box, you're done. You know, we spend almost as much time thinking about the impact of how to move the product around as we do the impact of the product itself. The product itself is going to be on the wall or in a rack for 10 years plus, hopefully. Mm-hmm. like That amortizes a lot of environmental sin. You know, the packaging uh, gets thrown away. It, you don't get to amortize the cost of that in the same way.
0: That's a fascinating story. I actually, I obviously, touched on some of these aspects. I think you and I have touched on them in conversations over the years around things like the bag. I remember the compostable bag that we uh, we have the power cords in. Is that still uh, shipping? Um,
1: we actually very recently moved from the compostable bag to a also compostable like uh, paper sleeve. Right. And that's an interesting story. The fiber bag was way better than plastic bags from an environmental standpoint. Uh The sleeve was very difficult to do because it doesn't have the strength of fiber. But the sleeve does two things. One, you know, it uses a lot less water in production than the fiber, which for all as nice as it's organic and everything did use quite a bit of water. And the other thing that sort of forced my hand, so I, you know, I can't take credit for that decision, is the revolution in PPE turned out to require the same kind of fibers that are used to make those nice canvas uh, bags. Right. So we got a call early in the, the COVID crisis from those companies basically saying, hey, we can keep making these bags, but we'd really like to build PPE instead. That was an easy decision. We said, fine, you know, we'll... Uh, accelerate the transition to these paper sleeves
0: that's amazing so if,
1: if you're a customer and you start to get your power cords and paper sleeves you know one i hope you've been a customer for a while and you have plenty of canvas bags already stored up in your server room and like Two, sorry about that, but the world's going to get PPE instead of canvas bags for a while.
0: <laughs> I'm imagining that there are very few people um, who thought this is a possibility of uh, of why those kind of changes happen. And and, uh, and just providing that broader context is fascinating to me. I'd not heard that either myself, um, this this concept of it being such a holistic decision when it comes to the packaging, considering local factors of where it's built and, and so on and so forth. That's fascinating. So very interesting insight there. Thanks, Morgan. Um, I think the last kind of topic that I wanted to touch on quickly was around some of the recent developments where we introduced a switch last year, the MS390, where we actually started to incorporate some silicon from our friends in the Cisco family. I'm um, just wonder if you could give us a little bit of a you know an overview of, of how that all rolled out for you.
1: First of all, Cisco develops really fantastic technologies. Once we realized that it was possible for us to leverage something like the you know the Cisco core silicon for switching. there was no question that we needed to figure out how to do it. It's just such an advantage, and it's such a, a feature set that to not use it would keep Meraki at a competitive disadvantage, mm. you know not only against our you know our brother business units, but against the market in general. We had to find a way to do it. The challenge in doing it is so much of Meraki's model, all of it, to be honest. Up to then, has been based on leveraging, you know, merchant silicon solutions which are fully supported, you know, even have some public development community, have many customers and therefore uh, the bugs are found kind of by a community managed by the original owner of the silicon. It's a very much more open platform and that also enabled the way that we build using partners and, you know, leveraging the skill sets of companies and manufacturers that have experience with those solutions you know Mm -hmm. we always go and we vet and pick the best people who have the experience when you move to a proprietary solution a lot of those options disappear and you have to learn how to make test validate manufacture and service in a very different way and it's a way that Cisco developed and they've been running successfully for decades it's really hard to walk in and learn it from scratch. So my team went through a lot of growing pains trying to figure out how to make that product into a Meraki product. Cisco went through a lot of pains working with the snotty kids over at Meraki who think that everything ought to work the way that they've done things for the last decade. You right. know, There was cultural conflict in the beginning we're on a good path you know if cisco is good at anything it's building bridges Mm -hmm. right between uh the meraki model and the cisco model like there's a bridge oh well done so with the with the m (laughs) we thank you with the ms390 we've demonstrated we can do it uh we've got that product in the market it's showing some early success i'm sure we'll double down on that model we'll continue to leverage that and that's really you know my philosophy in working with the broader Cisco entity is a best of both worlds. Like Meraki does some things well. And when it is more advantageous for us to keep doing it the way we do it for our business unit, we'll keep that where we can borrow from Cisco, where we can learn from the best. We'll do that and we'll double down when it works. So I expect to see that MS390 to be the first of many and to be a very successful venture for us.
0: Yeah, and like you said, I mean, so much of this is also driven by the feature set that it opens up for us. There's some really powerful uh, Cisco security features in particular that, that br- the brains of that switch really opened up for us. And for anybody who's listening and is interested in learning more about those, uh, we have done some previous episodes covering uh, that adaptive policy in particular. Uh, would be one to go back and have a look at to really understand uh, how we've used that silicon to its maximum potential with that product. Um, Morgan, this has been absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed listening to the stories, especially the early day stuff is always um, fun to listen to and recap. Um, But also some of the thinking that goes into developing uh, the various products we have and the packaging, that was a very interesting story as well. You may well have fired some imagination in uh, those who are listening, maybe people who are thinking about switching into hardware or maybe they're looking at developing a career in hardware. Would you have any kind of suggestions or uh, ideas about how you can develop those skills get some early experience that sort of thing
1: i do i think the advice that i would love to give is less about the skill set and more about the mindset i think you know a lot of people they love to get into product design or they love to get into hardware because you can touch it and you can feel it you can push it across the desk when you can sell it Mm -hmm. i mean that's why we all get into it and that's why we stay into it we love that experience I think that the thing to think about is it's easy to translate your love for that. And the fact that a company advertises what it does by showing its product on the main page, by starting to think that the physical product and the hardware is like, is the core is the, the sole reason that a company exists. The the whole company exists for the purpose of making these things and selling them. And, you know, frankly, That may have once been valid, but we don't live in a hardware world. We live in a solutions world. We live in a software and applications world. It doesn't matter what you're building. I mean, these days you can be building a car, for goodness sakes, and it's not about the car. It's about the way that it works in the ecosystem and Mm -hmm. the way that the software and the firmware are able to leverage all the features of that. So, like, the biggest thing I've always said about Meraki is Meraki is not a hardware company. I've said that from day one, and I say that to everybody who joins my team. I say you need to remember fundamentally Meraki is not a hardware company. And I would challenge a lot of people who work on product and a lot of people who work on hardware to think about their own efforts and say, I don't do what I do for the purpose of doing just that. The means are not the end. Mm. There's a bigger picture here. I need to build... The platform that is going to be the solution for what the customer needs and if you can overcome your passion it sounds dumb because (laughs) building things is my passion but like if you can overcome your passion and understand how it fits into the larger picture and how it meets the needs of the customer not just you know their physical install needs or their usage needs but their actual solution needs you will be successful in the hardware space and You will be a good partner to the other groups you work with in building a company or building a successful solution for the world. That's my highest recommendation for mindset and people who want to work in hardware or product.
0: It's very interesting. And, you know, when we think about hardware and we've touched on this as well, I mean, I think there's always going to be that place for aesthetic appreciation of those things up on the wall that whatever they're capable of down in the future, that's still always going to be a human uh, emotional response in in many cases to, to what they see so it's an interesting balance to think about those elements together all right Morgan well thank you so much indeed for your time uh, today really appreciate uh, you coming on and joining us I know you're super busy so definitely appreciate that for those of you who are listening if you've been inspired by what you've heard here obviously do please uh, reach out we'd love to hear from you you know even if you want to get a message relayed to Morgan I, I can't promise he'll answer it but we'll definitely uh, relay it in his direction And so you can reach me on Twitter at Meraki Simon. It's a great way to share your thoughts there. And also if you'd love to participate in this podcast, that would be so fantastic. I'd love that. So please definitely do that. Morgan, thank you so much again.
1: Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure.
0: Great fun. Uh, So for everybody listening, uh, we'll be back in a couple more weeks. Uh, Hopefully you're subscribed by now, but if not, please go to your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button uh, and then you'll get these delivered. I will do everything in my power to make sure we get these out every two weeks. Uh, So looking forward to the next one and we will see you back here very soon. Bye bye for now.